Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number three. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind it is a how true long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, I'm Steve. Hi, I'm Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Actually, we should probably call this podcast Let Me Read You a Story, because that's what we mostly do. And we're going to do it again today. Thanks for listening. Our theme for this episode is spring. Isn't it great to see the daffodils and tulips peeking out of the soil? Sunshine and flowers have an amazing ability to brighten our lives. Our first story comes from a nonfiction book Becky co-authored with Larry Baker titled It's a God Thing. Larry's story begins several years ago in the springtime in Fort Collins, Colorado, which is located at the base of the Rocky Mountains. It's chapter one of the book called Miracle Man. Partying with exotic dancers was a new experience for me in 1993, a result of a unique friendship with a young college student named Nikki. Three dramatic events in my life had led to that friendship, and would ultimately lead to many other remarkable friendships. The first incident occurred in the spring of 1989 in Fort Collins, Colorado, when I was 43 years old. I had risen early on a beautiful May morning and hurried to a nearby golf course to play around before work. The sky was clear and bright, birds were singing, and the foliage sparkled from a pre-dawn rain. I reveled in the fresh air, sunshine, and solitude, thanking God for such a magnificent Rocky Mountain daybreak. Then I reached the third hole. As I swung my driver, I lost my footing on the wet grass and hit the ground hard. When I regained consciousness, I was instantly aware of severe back pain. Moments later, I realized I could not stand upright. I also realized I was alone on the course. Knowing it could be hours before anyone found me, I crawled the 400 long yards to my car, dragging my clubs behind me. Somehow I managed to climb behind the wheel and drive home. After I hauled myself into the house, I called Terry, my hazel-eyed bride of four months, at the beauty salon we co-owned. I think I ripped some muscles in my back, I told her. Could you cancel my hair appointments for a couple of days? Do you want me to come home, sweetheart? she asked. I could hear concern in her voice. No, I'll be fine. The pain was intense, but I was an ex-marine and too tough for my own good. Plus, I didn't realize the extent of my injury. Terry came home over her lunch break anyway. I was lying on the couch, chock full of aspirin. Not wanting her to know how much pain I was in, I said, You go on back to work, honey. I'll be okay. However, when she returned at 5.30 that evening, I was on the floor screaming in agony. Terry called an ambulance. That was the beginning of a 26-day hospital ordeal. At first, the doctors couldn't find anything wrong and tried to send me home. But I refused to leave. The pain was still so excruciating, I couldn't get out of bed. Plus, I'd black out just attempting to turn over. 
Finally, after more extensive testing, my doctor came in, his brow furrowed. You've ruptured a disc and it's pushing into your spinal cord, he explained. We have to get it out right away. They immediately wheeled me in for emergency surgery, saying, You'll be fine, Mr. Baker. It'll take some rehab afterward, but you'll be okay. Several hours later, however, I awoke to bright lights that blared above masked strangers who hovered over me, peering into my face. It was like a sci-fi flick or a bad dream. Yet I could tell I was still in the operating room. Mr. Baker, move your legs, muffled voices demanded. I tried. Move your right toe. Move your left foot. I couldn't move anything. Then I heard someone say, I don't know what went wrong, but we have to operate again. So they put me back under anesthesia and and hollowed out a couple vertebrae to give my swollen spinal cord more space. When I awakened the next time, I was in a private room. Terry was beside my bed, her face white with worry. It wasn't long before one of the neurosurgeons marched in. Mr. and Mrs. Baker, he announced, I realize you've only been married a short time, but you need to know Larry may be a paraplegic the rest of his life. He might never walk again. With that, he pivoted and strode out of the room. Terry and I stared at each other. We hadn't had a clue I could leave the operating room paralyzed. Our lives were changed in an instant. Besides dealing with the trauma of a severely injured husband, Terry found herself running a large salon without her business partner. One night when she came into my hospital room, I could see she was worn out. I took her hand. Honey, you're exhausted, I said. I love it that you're here, but I love you and I want you to go home and get some rest. Are you sure? Terry asked. I replied, I love you and I think that's what you should do. She kissed me and left, promising to return the next day. I will never forget that evening in the hospital. It was 8.30 or 9 o'clock. I could hear televisions and muffled voices in the distance, people shuffling up and down the hallways. But my room was silent. I felt isolated and confined, trapped in a living nightmare. I was a lonely prisoner of my own body. When I first became paralyzed, I was told that if I could move my toes or feet within 10 days, I might have a chance to recover the use of my limbs again. Well, 10 days had come and gone without one lower muscle moving. It was disheartening to know I no longer had control over my body or my life. On top of that, earlier in the day, a doctor had come in and said, I'm sorry, Mr. Baker, but I have to take out your catheter. We've got to run some tests on your bladder. He knew the pain nerves still functioned, which made the procedure more than uncomfortable. After he removed the tube, with an apologetic shrug, the doctor added, We'll put this back in around 9.30 or 10 tonight. I didn't want to go through that torture again, so after the doctor left, I did pull-up after pull-up on the bar over my bed, hoping to stimulate urination before he returned. Groaning and sweating, I worked my upper muscles, muscles over and over, but to no avail. The urine cup on the bedstand still sat empty. That night, as I lay staring at the ceiling, feeling discouraged and depressed, out of the stillness, a quiet voice inside my head and my heart said, Okay, tough guy, what are you going to do now? You've called yourself a Christian for years, but you've never put me first. You've always worked out your own problems your way, handled life on your own. Yet if this hospital burned down right now, you couldn't even get out of that bed. Who are you going to turn to now? 
At that moment, I realized that I had always depended on myself. Although I'd become a believer while still a teenager, I'd never let God be Lord of my life. God, I am so sorry, I said. Will you forgive me? I promise I'll depend on you from now on. As I felt his compassion and his forgiveness flow over me, I pleaded, I feel so helpless and alone right now. Will you please give me a sign you're with me, that you care about me and love me? Instantly, I felt an urge to urinate, an incredible miracle and display of God's love for me. I reached for the cup beside my bed, tears running down my face. Later, my neurosurgeon told me, in all of your amazing progress, the biggest surprise was when your bladder began functioning again. Rehabilitation therapy in the hospital was a daily ordeal. Every session, the therapists would say, move your left foot, move your right foot, wiggle your left toes, wiggle your right toes. It became routine and rhetorical. Nothing ever happened. One day, shortly after my bladder miracle, as we were going through the usual regimen, the therapist suddenly said, Mr. Baker, I think I saw your toe twitch. At that moment, I knew I would walk again. When I left the hospital 14 days later, however, I was still considered a paraplegic, though I had slight movement in one foot and two toes. I had a long way to go, and no one could or would predict the outcome. Terry was a tremendous encouragement to me. One night, she said, Hey, hon, we're going out to dinner. She bathed me, blow-dried my hair, put my best suit on me, and got all dressed up herself. Then she helped me into the car and drove me to one of the nicest restaurants in town. As we, as we pulled up, she joked, We get to use a handicapped parking spot. I've always wondered what this feels like. <laughs> Not knowing how people would react, we rolled in with our heads high and had a wonderful, intimate evening together. We held hands, me in my wheelchair on one side of the table, and Terry in her seat on the other. She looked me in the eyes and said, You're the best-looking guy in a wheelchair I've ever seen, Larry. I love you. This will not destroy us. It's just going to make us stronger. We'll make it through, no matter what. I was convinced I would walk again, but the medical professionals weren't as optimistic. If it happens, they said, it'll take at least six months. However, I was determined to speed up the process. After my second physical therapy session at home, the, the therapist said, You're way ahead of schedule. Since you're obviously motivated and working really hard, I trust you conti to continue exercising on your own. Just call if you have questions. Thanks to the healing power of God and hard work, I went from a wheelchair to a walker, to crutches, then a cane, and finally to walking on my own within seven weeks. Hospital staff members still call me the Miracle Man. I love this first story in The God Thing, and I hope that Larry gets to hear this podcast. Um, it's just one of many really good stories that he told and I wrote down in that book. I would also add that the um, reference at the very beginning of the chapter to partying with exotic dancers, that uh, relates back to the prologue. So you'll have to read the book to find out more about that. <laughs> This next story is a fiction piece um, that's included in a short story compilation I'm putting together with my critique partners. We're titling the collection Passageways and hope to make it available soon. Uh, this story is one that I wrote, and it's titled Morning Song. Charlie took one sip of the coffee, 
plopped the cup down and fumbled through the plastic basket of cream and sugar packets. He'd never been fond of restaurant coffee, but this stuff was extra bitter. He picked out a sugar and a creamer packet and tore off the ends. Mamie's coffee had never needed this kind of doctoring. He stirred the white crystals into the coffee and watched the mixture mellow into a milk-chocolate swirl until he no longer saw the cup or the café. Instead, he saw Mamie in the morning, her soft face creased by pillow lines. She bustled about their cozy kitchen, humming under her breath as she worked. He was fully aware she struggled to restrain her eagerness for the new day until he'd downed his first cup of coffee and ceased his monotone grumbling. When the coffee was done perking, she filled his cup and handed it to him with a kiss and a shoulder squeeze. Holding the cup with both hands, he inhaled the warm, rich scent of her special blend as he waited for it to cool. Mamie opened the oven and pulled out a pan of muffins. After arranging the muffins in a basket, she set them in front of him, along with butter and jam, and went back to frying bacon. Although her cheerful smile never left her face, she didn't say anything. Mimi had learned early in their marriage that it took half a cup to make him civilized. At least that's what she said. He chuckled and reached for her. Sir? Charlie blinked. The waitress who'd taken his order stood next to the table with a plate of food in her hand. Oh, pardon me. He pulled his hand back. Thank God he hadn't grabbed the woman. My mind must have been elsewhere. That's okay. Crow's feet accentuated her kind eyes. It's a beautiful Colorado spring morning. Springtime in the Rockies, as the song goes. Isn't that when the poets say our minds tend to wonder? Without waiting for a reply, she lowered the plate to the paper place mat. Here are your eggs, toast, and hash browns. Can I bring you anything else? He moved the newspaper he'd been reading aside. A glass of orange juice. This coffee is terrible. Oh, dear. She frowned. I must have done something wrong. Sorry. Charlie cursed his crabbiness. Just because Mamie put up with his morning surliness didn't mean this woman would understand. I didn't mean to insult you. You didn't. She slid a stray salt and pepper curl behind her ear. I don't drink coffee, and neither did my husband. So I'm a novice at coffee making. But I thought it was something simple I could do without bothering the cook. (sighs) Evidently not. Charlie shook his head. I shouldn't be such a grouch. Don't apologize. I've got to learn how to make it right. Is it too weak or too strong? He couldn't help but smile at the determined woman. Too strong. I don't know much about making coffee either, but I think you either measured wrong or it's been sitting quite a while. Let's see. One finger on her chin. She looked at the ceiling. Charlie noted the absence of a wedding ring. I suppose I started perking at around five o'clock this morning. She glanced at him. Has that been too long? He checked his watch. 8.23. He grinned. Yes, and then some. The longer coffee sits, the more bitter it tastes. Oh, my. Well, if nothing else, I learned something today. She patted his arm. Thank you for your candidness. She turned to walk away but stopped. Do you eat breakfast here often? He nodded. Fairly often. Tell you what. She cocked her head. If you come back tomorrow morning at about the same time, I'll start a fresh pot at 7.45 and give you a free cup, just to show my appreciation. Sound like a good deal? Sure does. I'll be here. The twinkle in her brown eyes awakened his spirit like nothing else had since Mamie's death. Later, when she handed him the bill, Charlie said, I don't think I've seen you in here before. Probably not. This is only my third day. 
He studied her for a moment. You seem new to this kind of work. If you don't mind me asking, what made you choose waiting on tables? She rubbed at a spot on the table. My my husband, she stopped, took a breath, and started again. My husband, Rich, died ten months ago. I'm still trying to adjust to life without him. She drew a ragged breath. I thought this would get me out of the house and force me to be with people, help me to... Tears pooled in her eyes. To get back into life, she grabbed his plate and bolted for the kitchen. Charlie sighed, folded the newspaper, and rolled it into a tight cylinder. He had work waiting for him at the office, but he couldn't bring himself to leave just yet. For a long time, he stared out the window, tapping the paper in his palm. At precisely 7.50 the next morning, Charlie walked into the cafe and was greeted by the sweet aroma of cinnamon rolls, mingled with that of sizzling sausage, bacon, and eggs. The table where he'd sat yesterday was empty, so he pulled out a chair. Feeling a surprising sense of satisfaction with life, he opened his newspaper and waited for his new friend. She approached the table while he was still reading the front page. Her smile was again gracious, but her eyes were serious. I owe you an apology, she said. I shouldn't have been so rude yesterday. Charlie reached to pat her arm, but checked the impulse and instead ran his fingers across a few remaining strands of hair on the top of his head. I understand. Believe me, I know what you're going through. It helps to talk about the pain, although I don't do enough of that myself. To be honest, he never discussed Mamie's death, not even with his kids. She raised her eyebrows. You mean you? Yes, me too. He pursed his lips. Mamie died almost two years ago. Twenty-two months and three weeks, to be exact, and it still hurts. I think it will always hurt. Instantly, the old familiar despair surfaced, eager to drag him down into its cold abyss. Charlie drew a long breath and then exhaled. I hope you won't think I'm being forward, but I'd like to talk, if you have a minute. She surveyed the nearby booths and tables. Looks like a good time for a short break. I better take your order first. How about bringing us each one of Sam's giant cinnamon rolls? Pencil poised above her order pad, she eyed him for a moment. I shouldn't. They're loaded with calories. But she brightened. I hear he makes the best cinnamon rolls in town. And I keep saying I want to get back into life. What better way? She scribbled on the pad. Two sea rolls coming up. When she finished, she winked at him. So, mister... Are you game for a cup of my brew? Charlie grinned. That's why I'm here. He watched her walk away. It felt good to laugh again. That afternoon, Charlie met his youngest daughter, Susan, for lunch at their favorite restaurant a block from his downtown Denver law office. After placing their order, she leaned toward him. Eyebrows scrunched. He sat back, sensing she was about to say something he might not want to hear. Okay, Dad, tell me what happened. Charlie raised his own eyebrows. What do you mean? You seem more like your old self today. You're bouncier, peppier, happier. Something changed. He took a sip of water. I don't know what you're talking about. She'd always been the curious one in the family. She rested both forearms on the table. After Mom died, you left us. Oh, you were here physically, but that was all. Yet, today, you're different. Different, huh? Yeah. Well, I don't feel much different, he rubbed his jaw. Aha! Her amber eyes narrowed. So you do feel a little bit different. Something has changed, right, Dad? I guess you could say that, but... Susan clasped her hands together. 
Please, Dad, please tell me what happened. Charlie looked at her, glanced out the window at passing pedestrians, and then back at his daughter, who tapped an urgent rhythm on the table with her fingers. I suppose you could say something happened, but it's really nothing. He toyed with a spoon. You'll probably think it's silly. No way. She flipped her dark hair behind her shoulders. What is it? You know I'm dying of curiosity. He laughed. I've not doubted that for a moment since this conversation began. So? He took a breath. Well, I met this this lady and... Oh, Dad! She squealed. I should have known it. That's wonderful. I can't wait to tell Stephanie and Greg you're in love again. Charlie held up his hand. Susan? He had to stop her before she did one of her signature happy dances right there in the middle of the restaurant. Oh, uh, sorry. I got carried away. She placed her chin in her hands. Tell me all about her. Charlie felt his face grow warm. Well, actually, I don't. I don't know much. She's a waitress, a newly widowed, and, well, that's about it. What does she look like? Mm, medium-length hair, I think, or short, maybe brown. He thought for a moment. Maybe gray. He rubbed his sweaty hands against his pant leg. She, she looks like, like a woman. That's how she looks. Not fat, not skinny, or tall, or short. Susan watched him for a moment. Okay, how old is she? I don't know. He ran a finger through the condensation on his water glass. About your mother's age, I suppose. Maybe younger. The interrogation continued. What's her name? I I haven't asked. He silently cursed the moisture coating his armpits. Now he'd have to take his suit jacket to the dry cleaners, something Mamie used to do for him. Oh, Susan teased. Some romance. I just met her. He folded his arms and looked around for the waiter. Their food was taking way too long. I need to get back to work. She lowered her head. Sorry, Dad, that wasn't funny. She fidgeted with her napkin for a moment. But even if you don't know her very well, she sparked new life in you. That's great. Are you planning to ask her out? Charlie's eyes widened. I can't do that. I'm a married... Susan shook her head. Not anymore. We all love Mom and we all miss her a lot. But now it's okay and good for you to socialize. I'm not so sure, honey. Charlie crumpled his napkin into a ball. Your mother was the only one I socialized with for 37 years. I'd feel like an adulterous traitor with anyone else. Her eyes filled with compassion. It'll be hard. She placed her hand on top of his. But you should ask her out. She winked. Once you learn her name, of course. Monday morning, Charlie woke long before dawn. Hands behind his head, he stretched and grinned, already thinking of the previous evening. That Amanda was something else. Been a long time since he'd had so much fun, if that was a word for talking until midnight. He yawned a long, hard yawn, but then he sighed. When he picked Amanda up at her house, her college-age girls had glowered at him like a couple wildcats itching to tear him apart. If only he could tell them he knew far too well how much they hurt, that he'd treat their grieving mother with respect, that he wasn't trying to replace their father. Though he tried, Charlie couldn't go back to sleep. He showered and dressed and was about to walk through the door that led to the garage when the thought hit him. Amanda might think he was moving in on her if he showed up at the cafe early especially after keeping her up so late last night. He dropped his briefcase by the door and stomped into the kitchen to jerk a cereal box from the cupboard. 
Get involved with a woman and a man can't even eat where or when he wants anymore. He glared at Mamie's placid picture on the countertop. What do I do tomorrow morning and the next morning? It's all your fault, you know. How could you leave me in this mess? How dare you? Charlie stopped his ranting, put down the cereal box, and picked up the picture. He traced the flat, lifeless outline of his wife's face with his finger. I'm sorry, he whispered. I know it's not your fault, and I know you don't want to hear about another woman. The truth is, it's you I want, and only you. He clutched the picture to his chest. I miss you, Mamie, every moment of every day. Wednesday morning, a young man waited on him, and Amanda was nowhere in, the, in sight. By the time the waiter brought his order, Charlie could no longer constrain himself. With forced casualness, he said, I thought Amanda Wilson worked this shift. Does she have the day off? I think that's the lady I replaced, the waiter poured him another cup of coffee. She doesn't work here anymore. I see. Charlie felt a dull thud in his stomach. Just curious. His appetite gone, Charlie rolled the newspaper and trudged toward his office. It was his fault. Amanda's girls didn't like him, and maybe she felt the same way, but she didn't know how to tell him, so she quit her job. The moment he settled beyond his desk, Charlie reached for the telephone, determined to call Amanda and apologize. She had kids. She needed that job. But each time he lifted the receiver, his courage vanished. After a moment of pacing and mumbling in front of the window, Charlie checked his water checked his watch. Ridiculous. He hadn't gotten a thing done all day. He kicked his chair under the desk and punched the intercom button. At sound of his secretary's voice, he bellowed, cancel me out for the afternoon. All my appointments. I'm going fishing. When the westward-bound freeway finally escaped the suburbs, Charlie rolled down his window and sucked in a deep gulp of fresh spring air. Ah, that's more like it. That blasted smog is going to kill me yet. <clears throat> Excuse me. He turned off the radio and relaxed in his seat, relishing the sight of the majestic Rocky Mountains that towered ahead of him. Had to be months, maybe years, since he'd been fishing. Come to think of it, he hadn't been to the fishing hole since Mamie died. Before he could succumb to the pain again, he pounded the dashboard. I'm going to enjoy this. Motorists in the next lane gaped, but Charlie just snickered and looked away. A glance at the empty passenger seat, however, turned his snicker into another kind of sorrow. Mamie wasn't the only one he missed. He missed his dad, too. They'd had some good times fishing together, some real good times. Unbelievable the way that man could fi- find fish. They always came home with a catch. He rubbed his chin and succumbed to memories of happier times. Soon he was rattling across the isolated dirt road that led to his dad's favorite fishing hole. The access was rockier than ever, which was okay if it kept people out. But when he neared the creek, he saw the reflection of light off metal and groaned. Someone had found their spot. Charlie parked beside the lone four-wheel drive pickup. Of all the luck, I was hoping for a little peace and quiet. He debated whether or not to turn around and go back to town, but he finally got out of the car. He'd come all this way, might as well fish for a bit. He opened the trunk to get his tackle box and pull, and realized he was still wearing his suit jacket. If he was going to keep doing this, he'd have to put some fishing clothes in the car with his gear. Mamie would have skinned his hide for mucking around in his suit. Charlie set the equipment beside the car and closed the trunk lid. He took off his jacket, vest and tie, and tossed them onto the front seat. 
Then he rolled up his sleeves, grabbed his gear, and headed for the water. He scanned the creek bank, pleased the area hadn't changed much. Dark evergreens mingled with the white trunks and chartreuse leaves on the spring-awakened aspen trees. A kaleidoscope of wildflowers blanketed the clearing on the opposite hillside. Sunshine reflected off the rippling water below him. He worked his way down the hill, alternately sliding on the slick soles of his dress shoes and digging in his heels. Near the bottom, where the surging mountain creek formed a small pool, Charlie stopped to catch his breath. He peered through the foliage, thinking he'd fish as far as he could from the other person. A young male voice called, Come on over, the fish are biting. Charlie rolled his eyes. Of course the fish were biting. They always did at this hole. With a grunt and a groan, he finished the descent and settled onto a large gray rock that jutted out from the grassy shelf. He glanced at the thin young man several feet from him. So the fish are biting, huh? What are you catching? The other man grinned. Rainbows. He held up a string of three. Aren't these beauties? Sure are. The guy was friendly enough, but Charlie didn't know what to think about the beard or the grungy clothing. Maybe he was homeless. Probably had to eat. Probably had to fish to eat. Eyeing Charlie's white shirt and gray suit pants, the other man said, Looks like you took off in a hurry. Did you get lunch? Charlie shook his head and offered a sheepish grin. Guess I was anxious to get out of the office. He unfastened the top unfastened the top button of his shirt. Hadn't even realized it was lunchtime. I'm just finishing my lunch. I'd be glad to share the leftovers. My wife fixed enough for a Boy Scout troop. I could use a bite if you're sure you can spare it. No problem. My name is Bob Mason. What's yours? Charlie, he said. Charlie Burns. Nice to meet you, Charlie. Bob began to dig through his cooler. How does a tuna sandwich on whole grain bread and some carrot sticks sound? Delicious, and a lot better for my cholesterol levels than what I've been eating lately. The two fished in silence until Charlie felt a powerful tug on his line. Hey, he said, feels like a whopper. This is still the best fishing hole around. Oops, Bob said. Hope I didn't horn in on your territory. Charlie didn't respond until he landed the trout. I've been fishing this pond for 40 years, but I don't own, I don't own it, although my dad might have argued that point if he were still around. Bob laughed. I discovered it a few weeks ago, the first time my wife kicked me out of the store. Charlie gave him a questioning look and laid the fish on a nearby rock. It's not as bad as it sounds. We bought a health food store in Evergreen a while back, and we're just getting it off the ground. If I spend too much time with the books, my mind starts to explode. That's the way it feels anyway. So Barb tells me I have to go fishing one afternoon a week. Some dame, huh? Sounds like you reeled in a beauty. Charlie smiled. I'd say she's a keeper. She is. Bob attached a new fly to his line. I almost blew it after our third date, though. I called and called her apartment, but she never answered. And every time I tried to get her at the place where she worked, they just said, She's out, and we don't know when she'll return. Same words, every time, like a recording. Drove me nuts. I finally decided she was avoiding me and stopped calling. But I couldn't stop thinking about her. So I drove by her apartment one night. Took me forever to work up the nerve, but I eventually got out of the car and knocked on her door. Someone else answered. When I asked for Barb, the woman said, I'm just feeding your cat while she's in the hospital. I said, what? And found out she'd been in a bad car wreck. I felt terrible and immediately rushed to the hospital and... He shrugged his shoulders. Things went from there. Charlie grinned. That's what I like to hear. Happy endings. Bob tossed his line across the water again. One more round and I better head back to start dinner. Doesn't seem right to make my wife run the store, run the store alone and cook too. 
Besides, she loves the way I fix trout. Honeybees buzzed in the wild strawberry bushes near Charlie, zipping from one blossom to the next. In the tree branches above him, birds chirped a happy serenade to springtime. Water gurgled and splashed at his feet, and sunshine saturated his winter-weary bones. Charlie caught one more fish, laid back in the grass, and fell asleep. When he awoke, the air had cooled, and the shadows of the pines stretched across the creek. He brushed off his clothing, gathered his things, and climbed the rocky hill to his car. Before he stashed his gear, he drew one last gulp of mountain air. His dad was right. Best medicine in the world. The sun was almost down when he pulled into his garage. Charlie lifted the bucket of fish from the trunk, slammed it shut, and strode whistling into the kitchen. He emptied the trout into the sink and bent to kiss Mamie's pitcher. Time for the first trout supper of the season, sweetheart. He reached for the telephone. You know what I think, babe? I think a fish fry would be a great way for Amanda and her girls to get to know our kids. Good story. Can't wait till that comes, that uh, compilation comes out. Well, my poem is about spring, and I called it Evergreen. When fall assaults the evergreen, when win- then winter takes its turn. The tree lives under sheets of white, unlike the flower and fern. Then spring shines forth with sun and warmth. It's by divine design. We see as snow slips off the limbs, its green stayed the whole time. What person has not thought that he would not his own? It was not. What person has not thought that he would not his cares survive? But hanging on, he came right through and found himself alive. <laughs> Sticking with our spring theme, this selection is uh, the second chapter in my no- I can't talk in my novel titled Winds of Wyoming. Chapter two. Mike Duncan slowed the truck to maneuver around yet another mud hole. The winding mountain road was still recovering from the spring snowstorm. He shifted gears and plowed forward. Thanks to studded tires, his dad's ancient Dodge, a pickup he'd nicknamed Old, Old Blue, could handle almost any weather the skies chose to dump. At least that's what his father had told the scoffers. Both windows were open to the cool morning air. Mike's dog, Tramp, sat on the passenger seat, his head out the window. The big collie barked at a doe and a fawn that peeked from behind white blossom chokecherry bushes. The deer vanished and Tramp returned to scrutinizing his dominion, nostrils quivering, tongue dripping, fur blowing in the breeze. Mike reached over to scratch his aging dog's back. With a wag of his tail, Tramp acknowledged him, but didn't turn around. Mike laughed. Too busy for me, huh? He leaned out the driver's side window to savor the fresh smell of the cool, damp earth and the hint of early color that seeped across the meadows and hills between banks of snow. His bison were no doubt loving the tender new grass, that is, if they made it through the storm. Self-sufficient animals, buffalo could protect themselves and their newborn calves from storms that killed cattle, but it didn't hurt to keep tabs on them and the fence line. He straightened and bounced with the truck as it bumped downhill toward the bison pasture. What a nightmare it would be to round up those huge, unpredictable beasts if they broke loose and wandered into the woods. Each time he moved the herd to a new pasture, he'd prove the old adage true. 
You can move a bison anywhere he wants to go. The pickup bucked and skidded over the rutted trail, rattling like a bucket of bolts. Mike shifted to a lower gear. He'd have to draft a couple of the guys to help him fill the worst of the ruts when the two-track road dried. As often happened with wet spring storms, the moisture greened the emerging emerging grass but destroyed dirt byways. But he didn't mind the extra work. The whispering pines needed every drop of water the heavens could spare, as his dad used to say. He felt a stab of pain slice through his heart. Would he ever stop missing his dad? At breakfast, his mom had told him the intern she'd hired to take over his dad's marketing duties for the summer would be arriving soon. He rubbed his chin. Though his dad had died months ago, he wasn't sure he was ready to see someone else seated behind his desk. His two-way crackled to life. Hey, boss man, can you hear me? Mike groaned and lifted the radio from his belt. Why couldn't Clint just call him by his name? This is Mike. Go ahead. The ranch manager's voice sputtered through the airwaves. Just check the cattle. They weathered the storm okay, even the calves. That's good news, really good news. I'm not far from the Battle Creek pasture. I'll take a look at the bison, but they should be fine. What about the horses? Tanner and I are headed over now. Rusty is going to meet us there. We'll round up the riding stock and drive them to the corral by the barn to get them ready for the guests. Good plan. I'll catch you later. He steered around a boulder that had tumbled off the damp hillside onto the road and made a mental note to bring the front-end loader when they worked on the road. Within minutes, he reached his destination, parked across the road from the fence pasture, and turned off the engine. Tramp jumped out the window. He trotted toward the enclosure, tail high, nose to the ground. Mike followed, sidestepping the boggy patches, until he came across grooves in the grass. What in the... He eyeballed the ATV trail that tore up the hillside. Tramp came bounding back as if to say, Come on, let's go. He stroked the dog's head. What do you think, pal? Our crew knows better than to ride all terrains through the wet meadow. But who else would cross their land without permission, and what were they doing near his bison pasture? Tramp licked his hand and scampered away. Mike listened for the sound of an engine, but heard only bird calls and muffled snorts from the herd. Probably kids out joyriding. If they were smart, they had avoided the buffalo. But few people realized domestication was not the same as tame in a bison's brain. He'd learned quickly to never turn his back on the capricious beasts, which remained as wild as when they ruled the plains a hundred-plus years earlier. He watched his dog feverishly zigzag up the hill. Following the fence line, probably hot on the trail of a jackrabbit. Most of the herd grazed some distance from him, spread across a brown-green hillside splotched with snow dollops and outlined by the blue of the Sierra Madres. High above him, a pair of hawks floated on an air current. The scent of dung drifted on the breeze. One buffalo cow scratched her back on a low tree branch, grunting with pleasure while another wallowed in a mud hole. Others chewed their cud in apparent quiet contemplation. In contrast, cinnamon-colored calves cavorted like school kids at recess. The word tranquility came to mind, the perfect word to define the moment. Whatever the AT driver was up to, ATV driver was up to, he or she hadn't messed with his animals, thank God. Tramp barked. Mike turned toward the yap, thinking the dog had cornered the rabbit. Instead, his collie stood nose-to-nose with a calf on the wrong side of the fence. Mike did a double-take before running toward the pair but he stopped when he saw a break in the wire. So that's how, flashed his first assessment of the situation. The second followed immediately. 
The calf had a mama who would charge to its rescue sooner than later and faster than a creature her size should be able to move. He yelled, Tramp! Tramp, come here! Tramp's attention did not waver from the calf. Though his dog's behavior frustrated him, Mike knew the stray calf activated his herding instinct, one as deep-rooted and powerful as that of salmon swimming upstream to spawn. He studied the cows closest to the calf. Some grazed, the tails twitching away the flies. Others rested. They all appeared passive, but he knew one of them belonged with the calf. The minute the calf bawled, his dog was in trouble, and at least two buffalo would be loose. Tramp barked again. Mike winced, knowing his dog was attracting the cow's attention. The calf jumped to the side, ready to romp with its newfound playmate. Mike started toward the pair, calling for his dog, but then he stopped, spun on his heels, and raced for his truck. He'd create a visual barrier with a pickup to hide the hole in the fence and then signal Tramp to herd the calf back where it belonged. Glad he'd left the key in the ignition, he started the trunk, j- truck, jammed the gears into first, released the clutch, and charged across the road onto the prairie. He would worry about reseeding later. The calf halted mid-frolic to stare at the advancing truck before it let out a, Where's my mama? bellow. Mike gripped the steering wheel tighter. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. He slowed the pickup and scanned the herd. Several bison lifted their heavy heads. A lone buffalo raised her head and her tail. Not a good sign. He pounded the horn. The calf scampered through the gap toward the herd. From the road, he gunned the truck uphill alongside the fence, maneuvering it as close as he could to the gap before stopping. The passenger side was angled precariously higher on the hillock than the driver's side, but that was the best he could do. He rammed the gear shift into neutral, stomped the emergency brake to the floor, jumped out and dashed toward the road, yelling for Tramp as he ran. Hearing nothing, he turned his head to see if the dog had followed and lost his footing. He landed face first in a puddle. Sputtering and floundering in the frigid muddy, but no, mud, but knowing the buffalo could be right behind him, he scrambled to get a foothold. Before he could stand, However, a booming metallic crunch fractured the air. Mike staggered and slipped again. Blinking brown water from his eyelashes, he looked up just in time to see the pickup balance for a brief moment on the driver's side wheels before it clattered onto its side. As the sound of the crash echoed between the hills, he braced himself for another blow by the buffalo, one that would knock Old Blue all the way over. He waited, but nothing happened. Finally, the melodic lilt of a metal lark broke the silence like a church bell on a winter morning. He was just beginning to breathe again when a terrifying thought bolted through his head. Maybe the cow would weary of the pickup and charge him instead. He tensed, ready to sprint into the trees, until he saw her saunter toward the herd with the calf at her side. Dropping backward onto his elbows in the icy muck, he watched the wheels of his dad's favorite pickup spin in the air. I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. Tail wagging, Tramp bounded through the mire to lick his master's wet face. Mike shoved the dog aside and crawled out of the puddle, spitting dirt. Tramp crept away, head down, tail between his legs. Once he got to his feet and wiped the grime from his face, Mike retrieved his hat from the water. He hit it against a fence post, and mud sprayed from the brim like the bursts of frustration that shotgunned through his chest. The nearest dry-cleaning facility, which was 50 miles away, charged a fortune to clean hats. He didn't even want to guess the cost to repair Old Blue. He shivered and limped to the truck to look for his jacket, noticing for the first time that his shin hurt. Must have hit a rock. The engine was silent. He peered through the front window. No way he could reach his coat. 
He dropped the hat in the open passenger window and turned to examine the barbed wire that drooped from posts adjacent Old Blue's chassis. The separations were clean, the strands apparently cut one by one. Now the ATV trail made sense. Well, that's it for this round. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day and go live your story. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.